Chapter 14 of the Story of Young Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Young Abraham Lincoln by Wayne Whipple. Chapter 14 Moving to Springfield. New Salem could no longer give young Lincoln scope for his growing power and influence. Within a few weeks after the Lincoln Stone protest, late in March 1837, after living six years in the little village which held so much of life and sorrow for him, Abe sold his surveying compass, marking pins, chain and pole, packed all his effects into his saddlebags, borrowed a horse of his good friend Squire Bowling Green, and reluctantly said goodbye to his friends there. It is a strange fact that New Salem ceased to exist within a year from the day Honest Abe left it. Even its little post office was discontinued by the government. Henry C. Whitney, who was associated with Lincoln in those early days, describes Abe's modest entry into the future state capital, with all his possessions in a pair of saddlebags, and calling at the store of Joshua F. Speed, overlooking the square, in the following dialogue. Speed. Hello, Abe. Just from Salem? Lincoln. Howdy, Speed. Yes, this is my first show-up. Speed. So you were to be one of us. Lincoln. I reckon so, if you will let me take pot luck with you. Speed. All right, Abe. It's better than Salem. Lincoln. I've been to Gorman's and got a single bedstead. Now you figure out what it will cost for a tick, blankets, and so forth. Speed. After figuring. Say, seventeen dollars or so. Lincoln, countenance paling. I had no idea it would cost half that, and I... I can't pay it. But if you can wait on me till Christmas, and I make anything, I'll pay. If I don't, I can't. Speed. I can do better than that. Upstairs I sleep in a bed big enough for two, and you just come and sleep with me till you can do better. Lincoln. Brightening. Good. Where is it? Speed. Upstairs behind that pile of barrels. Turn to the right when you go up. Lincoln, returning joyously, Well, Speed, I've moved. Stuart and Lincoln Major Stuart had grown so thoroughly interested in Lincoln, approving the diligence with which the young law student applied himself to the books which he had lent him, that after his signal success in bringing about the removal of the state capital to Springfield, the older man invited the younger to go into partnership with him. Abe had been admitted to the bar the year before, and had practised law in a small way before Squire Bowling Green in New Salem. Greatly flattered by the offer of such a man, Abe gladly accepted, and soon after his arrival in Springfield, this sign, which thrilled the junior partner's whole being, appeared in front of an office near the square. Stuart and Lincoln, Attorneys at Law. I never use anyone's money but my own. After a while, Lincoln left Speed's friendly loft and slept on a lounge in the law office, keeping his few effects in the little old-fashioned trunk, pushed out of sight under his couch. One day an agent of the post office came in and asked if Abraham Lincoln could be found there. Abe arose and, reaching out his hand, said that was his name. The agent then stated his business. He had come to collect a balance due the post office department since the closing of the post office at New Salem. The young ex-postmaster looked puzzled for a moment, and a friend, who happened to be present, hastened to his rescue with, Lincoln, if you are in need of money, let us help you. Abe made no reply, 
but pulling out his little old trunk, he asked the agent how much he owed. The man stated the amount, and he, opening the trunk, took out an old cotton cloth containing coins, which he handed to the official without counting, and it proved to be the exact sum required, over $17, evidently the very pieces of money Abe had received while acting as a postmaster years before. After the department agent had receipted for the money and had gone out, Mr. Lincoln quietly remarked, I never use anyone's money but my own. Drops through the ceiling to demand free speech. Stewart and Lincoln's office was for a time over a courtroom, which was used evenings as a hall. There was a square opening in the ceiling of the courtroom, covered by a trapdoor in the room overhead where Lincoln slept. One night there was a promiscuous crowd in the hall, and Lincoln's friend, E.D. Baker, was delivering a political harangue. Becoming somewhat excited, Baker made an accusation against a well-known newspaper in Springfield, and the remark was resented by several in the audience. "'Pull him down!' yelled one of them, as they came up to the platform threatening Baker with personal violence. There was considerable confusion which might become a riot. Just at this juncture, the spectators were astonished to see a pair of long legs dangling from the ceiling, and Abraham Lincoln dropped upon the platform. Seizing the water pitcher, he took his stand beside the speaker, and brandished it, his face ablaze with indignation. "'Gentlemen,' he said, when the confusion had subsided, let us not disgrace the age and the country in which we live. This is a land where freedom of speech is guaranteed. Mr. Baker has a right to speak, and ought to be permitted to do so. I am here to protect him, and no man shall take him from this stand if I can prevent it. Lincoln had opened the trap door in his room, and silently watched the proceedings until he saw that his presence was needed below. Then he dropped right into the midst of the fray, and defended his friend and the right of free speech at the same time. Defending the Defenceless A widow came to Mr. Lincoln and told him how an attorney had charged her an exorbitant fee for collecting her pension. Such cases filled him with righteous wrath. He cared nothing for professional etiquette if it permitted the swindling of a poor woman. Going directly to the greedy lawyer, he forced him to refund to the widow all that he had charged in excess of a fair fee for his services, or he would start proceedings at once to prevent the extortionate attorney from practicing law any longer at the Springfield Bar. If a negro had been wronged in any way, Lawyer Lincoln was the only attorney in Springfield who dared to appear in his behalf, for he always did so at great risk to his political standing. Sometimes he appeared in defense of fugitive slaves, or negroes who had been freed, or had run away from southern or slave states, where slavery prevailed to gain liberty in free states in which slavery was not allowed. Lawyer Lincoln did all this at the risk of making himself very unpopular with his fellow attorneys and among the people at large, the greater part of whom were then in favour of permitting those who wished to own, buy and sell Negroes as slaves. Lincoln always sympathised with the poor and downtrodden. He could not bear to charge what his fellow lawyers considered a fair price for the amount of work and time spent on a case. He often advised those who came to him to settle their disputes without going to the law. Once he told a man he would charge him a large fee if he had to try the case, but if the parties in the dispute settled their difficulty without going into court, he would furnish them all the legal advice they needed free of charge. Here is some excellent counsel lawyer Lincoln gave, in later life, in an address to a class of young attorneys. Discourage litigation. Persuade your neighbours to compromise whenever you can. Point out to them how the nominal winner is often the real loser, in fees, expenses, and waste of time. 
As a peacemaker, a lawyer has a superior opportunity of becoming a good man. There will always be enough business. Never stir up litigation. A worse man can scarcely be found than one who does this. Who can be more nearly a fiend than he who habitually overhauls the register of deeds in search of defects in titles whereon to stir up strife and put money in his pocket? A moral tone ought to be infused into the profession which should drive such men out of it. Young lawyer Lincoln offers to pay half the damages. A wagon maker in Mechanicsville, near Springfield, was sued on account of a disputed bill. The other side had engaged the best lawyer in the place. The Cartwright saw that his own attorney would be unable to defend the case well. So when the day of the trial arrived, he sent his son-in-law to Springfield to bring Mr. Lincoln to save the day for him if possible. He said to the messenger, Son, you've just got time. Take this letter to my young friend Abe Lincoln and bring him back in the buggy to appear in the case. Guess he'll come if he can. The young man from Mechanicsville found the lawyer in the street playing knucks with a troop of children and laughing heartily at the fun they were all having. When the note was handed to him, Lincoln said, All right, wait a minute, and the game soon ended amid peals of laughter. Then the young lawyer jumped into the buggy. On the way back, Mr. Lincoln told his companion such funny stories that the young man, convulsed with laughter, was unable to drive. The horse, badly broken, upset them into a ditch, smashing the vehicle. You stay behind and look after the buggy, said the lawyer. I'll walk on. He came with long strides into the courtroom just in time for the trial and won the case for the wagon maker. What am I to pay you? asked the client, delighted. I hope you won't think ten or fifteen dollars too much, said the young attorney, and I'll pay half the hire of the buggy and half the cost of repairing it. Lawyer Lincoln and Mary Owens About the time Mr. Lincoln was admitted to the bar, Miss Mary Owens, a bright and beautiful young woman from Kentucky, came to visit her married sister near New Salem. The sister had boasted that she was going to make a match between her sister and Lawyer Lincoln. The newly admitted attorney smiled indulgently at all this banter until he began to consider himself under obligations to marry Miss Owens if that young lady proved willing. After he went to live in Springfield, with no home but his office, he wrote the young lady a long, discouraging letter of which this is a part. I am thinking of what we said about your coming to live in Springfield. I am afraid you would not be satisfied. There is a great deal of flourishing about in carriages here, which it would be your doom to see without sharing it. You would have to be poor without the means of hiding your poverty. Do you believe that you could bear that patiently? Whatever woman may cast her lot with mine, should any ever do so, it is my intention to do all in my power to make her happy and contented and there is nothing I can imagine that could make me more unhappy than to fail in that effort. I know I should be much happier with you than the way I am, provided I saw no sign of discontent in you. I much wish you would think seriously before you decide. What I have said I will most positively abide by, provided you wish it. You have not been accustomed to hardship, and it may be more severe than you now imagine. I know you are capable of thinking correctly on any subject, and if you deliberate maturely upon this before you decide, then I am willing to abide by your decision. Yours, etc., Lincoln. For a love letter, this was nearly as cold and formal as a legal document. Miss Owens could see well enough that lawyer Lincoln was not much in love with her, and she let him know, as kindly as she could, that she was not disposed to cast her lot for life with an enforced lover, 
as he had proved himself to be. She afterward confided to a friend that Mr. Lincoln was deficient in those little links which make up the chain of a woman's happiness. The Early Rivalry Between Lincoln and Douglas Soon after Mr. Lincoln came to Springfield, he met Stephen A. Douglas, a brilliant little man from Vermont. The two seemed naturally to take opposing sides of every question. They were opposite in every way. Lincoln was tall, angular, and awkward. Douglas was small, round, and graceful. He came to be known as the Little Giant. Douglas was a Democrat and favoured slavery. Lincoln was a Whig and strongly opposed that dark institution. Even in petty discussions in Speed's store, the two men seemed to gravitate to opposite sides. A little later they were rivals for the hand of the same young woman. One night, in convivial company, Mr. Douglas's attention was directed to the fact that Mr. Lincoln neither smoked nor drank. Considering this a reflection upon his own habits, the little man sneered, "'What, Mr. Lincoln, are you a temperance man?' "'No,' replied Lincoln, with a smile full of meaning. "'I'm not exactly a temperance man, but I am temperate in this, to wit, I don't drink.'" In spite of this remark, Mr. Lincoln was an ardent temperance man. One Washington's birthday, he delivered a temperance address before the Washingtonian Society of Springfield on Charity in Temperance Reform, in which he made a strong comparison between the drink habit and black slavery. Logan and Lincoln In 1841, the partnership between Stuart and Lincoln was dissolved, and the younger man became a member of the firm of Logan and Lincoln. This was considered a long step in advance for the young lawyer, as Judge Stephen T. Logan was known as one of the leading lawyers in the state. From this senior partner, he learned to make the thorough study of his cases that characterized his work throughout his later career. While in partnership with Logan, Mr. Lincoln was helping a young fellow named Billy Herndon, a clerk in his friend Speed's store, advising him in his law studies and promising to give the youth a place in his own office as soon as young Herndon should be fitted to fill it. What Lincoln did with his first $500 fee During the interim between two partnerships, after he had left Major Stewart, and before he went into the office with Logan, Mr. Lincoln conducted a case alone. He worked very hard and made a brilliant success of it, winning the verdict and a $500 fee. When an old lawyer friend called on him, Lincoln had the money spread out on the table, counting it over. Look here, Judge, said the young lawyer. See what a heap of money I've got from that case. Did you ever see anything like it? Why, I never in my life had so much money all at once. Then his manner changed, and crossing his long arms on the table, he said, I have just got $500. If it were only 750 I would go and buy a quarter section, 160 acres, of land, and give it to my old stepmother. The friend offered to lend him the $250 needed. While drawing up the necessary papers, the old judge gave the young lawyer this advice. Lincoln, I wouldn't do it quite that way. Your stepmother is getting old, and in all probability will not live many years. I would settle the property upon her for use during her lifetime to revert to you upon her death. I shall do no such thing, Lincoln replied with deep feeling. It is a poor return at best for all the good woman's devotion to me, and there is not going to be any halfway business about it. The dutiful stepson did as he planned. Some years later he was obliged to write to John Johnston, his stepmother's son, 
appealing to him not to try to induce his mother to sell the land lest the old woman should lose the support he had provided for her in her declining years. In Love with a Bell from Lexington Lincoln's popularity in Sangamon County, always increasing, was greatly strengthened by the part he had taken in the removal of the capital to Springfield, which was the county seat as well as the state capital. So he was returned to the legislature, now held in Springfield time after time, without further effort on his part. He was looked upon as a young man with a great future. While he was in the office with Major Stewart, that gentleman's cousin, Miss Mary Todd, a witty, accomplished young lady from Lexington, Kentucky, came to Springfield to visit her sister, wife of Ninian W. Edwards, one of the Long Nine, in the State Assembly. Miss Todd was brilliant and gay, a society girl, in every way the opposite of Mr. Lincoln, and he was charmed with everything she said and did. Judge Douglas was one of her numerous admirers, and it is said that the Louisville Belle was so flattered by his attentions that she was in doubt, for a time, which suited to accept. She was an ambitious young woman, having boasted from girlhood that she would one day be mistress of the White House. To all appearances, Douglas was the more likely to fulfil Miss Todd's high ambition. He was a society man, witty in conversation, popular with women as well as with men, and had been to Congress, so he had a national reputation, while Lincoln's was only local, or at most confined to Sangamon County and the 8th Judicial Circuit of Illinois. But Mr. Douglas was already addicted to drink, and Miss Todd saw doubtless that he could not go on long at the rapid pace he was keeping up. It is often said that she was in favour of slavery, as some of her relatives, who owned slaves, years later, entered the Confederate ranks to fight against the Union. But the remarkable fact that she finally chose Lincoln shows that her sympathies were against slavery, and she thus cut herself off from several members of her own family. With a woman's intuition, she saw the true worth of Abraham Lincoln, and before long, they were understood to be engaged. But the young lawyer, after his recent experience with Mary Owens, distrusted his ability to make any woman happy, much less the Belle from Louisville, so brilliant, vivacious, well-educated, and exacting. He seemed to grow morbidly conscious of his shortcomings, and she was high-strung. A misunderstanding arose, and between such exceptional natures, the course of true love never did run smooth. Their engagement, if they were actually betrothed, was broken, and the lawyer lover was plunged in deep melancholy. He wrote long, morbid letters to his friend Speed, who had returned to Kentucky and had recently married there. Lincoln even went to Louisville to visit the Speeds, hoping that the change of scene and friendly sympathies and counsel would revive his health and spirits. In one of his letters, Lincoln bemoaned his sad fate and referred to the fatal 1st of January, probably the date when his engagement or the understanding with Mary Todd was broken. From this expression, one of Lincoln's biographers elaborated a damaging fiction, stating that Lincoln and his affianced were to have been married that day, that the wedding supper was ready, that the bride was all dressed for the ceremony, the guests assembled, but the melancholy bridegroom failed to come to his own wedding. If such a thing had happened in a little town like Springfield in those days, the guests would have told of it, and everybody would have gossiped about it. It would have been a nine days wonder, and such a great joker as Lincoln would never have heard the last of it. The Strange Events Leading Up to Lincoln's Marriage After Lincoln's return from visiting the Speeds in Louisville, he threw himself into politics again, not, however, in his own behalf. He declined to be a candidate again for the state legislature 
in which he had served four consecutive terms covering a period of eight years. He engaged enthusiastically in the log cabin campaign of 1840 when the country went for Tippecanoe and Tyler too, which means that General William Henry Harrison, the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe, and John Tyler were elected President and Vice President of the United States. In 1842, the young lawyer had so far recovered from bodily illness and mental unhappiness as to write more cheerful letters to his friend Speed, of which two short extracts follow. It seems to me that I should have been entirely happy but for the never-absent idea that there is one, Miss Todd, still unhappy, whom I have contributed to make so. That still kills my soul. I cannot but reproach myself for even wishing to be happy while she is otherwise. She accompanied a large party on the railroad cars to Jacksonville last Monday, and at her return spoke, so I heard of it, of having enjoyed the trip exceedingly. God be praised for that. You will see by the last Sangamon journal that I made a temperance speech on the 22nd of February, which I claim that Fanny and you shall read as an act of charity toward me, for I cannot learn that anybody has read it or is likely to. Fortunately, it is not long, and I shall deem it a sufficient compliance with my request if one of you listens while the other reads it. Early the following summer, Lincoln wrote for the Sangamon Journal a humorous criticism of State Auditor Shields, a vain and touchy little man. This was in the form of a story, and signed by Rebecca of the Lost Townships. The article created considerable amusement, and might have passed unnoticed by the conceited little auditor if it had not been followed by another, less humorous, but more personal and satirical, signed in the same way, but the second communication was written by two mischievous, if not malicious girls, Mary Todd and her friend Julia Jane. This stinging attack made Shields wild with rage, and he demanded the name of the writer of it. Lincoln told the editor to give Shields his name, as if he had written both contributions, and thus protect the two young ladies. The auditor then challenged the lawyer to fight a duel. Lincoln, averse to dueling, chose absurd weapons, imposed ridiculous conditions, and tried to treat the whole affair as a huge joke. When the two came face to face, explanations became possible and the ludicrous duel was avoided. Lincoln's conduct throughout this humiliating affair plainly showed that, while Shields would gladly have killed him, he had no intention of injuring the man who had challenged him. Mary Todd's heart seems to have softened toward the young man who was willing to risk his life for her sake, and the pair, after a long and miserable misunderstanding on both sides, were happily married on the 4th of November, 1842. Their wedding ceremony was the first ever performed in Springfield by the use of the Episcopal ritual. When one of the guests, bluff old judge Tom Brown, saw the bridegroom placing the ring on Miss Todd's finger and repeating after the minister, With this ring, I thee wed, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow, he exclaimed in a stage whisper, Grace to Goshen, Lincoln, the statute fixes all that. In a letter to Speed, not long after this event, the happy bridegroom wrote, We are not keeping house, but boarding at the Globe Tavern, which is very well kept now by a widow lady of the name of Beck. Our rooms are the same Dr. Wallace occupied there, and boarding only costs four dollars a week for the two. I most heartily wish you and your family will not fail to come. Just let us know the time, a week in advance, and we will have a room prepared for you, and we'll all be merry together for a while. End of chapter 14